What role do colleges and universities play in building an anti-racist future? This podcast series, Building the Anti-Racist College and University, seeks to begin examining this question. Through interviews with administrators, faculty, researchers, policy experts, historians, and students, each episode in this series examines one important piece of beginning to conceptualize anti-racist colleges and universities of the present and future. This series was produced as part of a term project during fall 2020 for Higher Education Leadership 7372, Diversity and Culture in Higher Education at Sam Houston State University in Huntsville, Texas, United States. The foundation for this project was Ibram Kendi's 2019 text, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Each student in the course designed one episode seeking to unpack, question, problematize, or dissect a particular area related to building anti-racist colleges and universities. The series in no way is exhaustive, prescriptive, or capable of answering every question. But collectively, the series adds to an ongoing conversation in higher education about anti-racist futures. We hope it inspires dialogue, reflection, engagement, and action on colleges and universities in the United States and around the world. We hope it inspires ongoing work, research, activism, policy, local, regional, national, and international action. We hope it brings us one step closer to an anti-racist future in post-secondary education. This episode is, Can Spaces Designed to be Anti-Racist Perpetuate Racism? Hello, I'm Veronica Gonzalez-Hoff, a doctoral candidate in the Higher Education Leadership Program at Sam Houston State University. Welcome to my segment of the Cohort 41 podcast project for our diversity and culture in higher education course. I currently work in marketing and communications for the Division of Student Affairs at Texas A&M University, but I've had the opportunity to work in higher education at a few other state institutions since 2013. For this segment, I'll be exploring the concept of space creation and spatial racism on college campuses. Before reading Ibram Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist, I'd never really considered how our spaces on campus could still be places of racism and perpetuate certain types of racism. In chapter 13, Kendi discusses space racism and space anti-racism. Kendi reflects on the idea of the black space, like the black neighborhood, and discusses how a racist worldview sees it as an inherently dangerous space. Spaces like this are stigmatized and feared. He goes on to discuss the good and bad in all spaces, no matter what color. Racist power racializes space as it racializes people. The hierarchy of space relates to funding and resources, elevating white spaces in all ways. Kendi further explains by saying, quote, resources define a space. People make spaces from resources. Comparing spaces across race classes is like matching fighters of different weight classes, which fighting sports consider unfair. And that's on page 172. So let's look at spaces created on college campuses and some of the research that's being conducted and discussed on this. In an article by Lori Davis Patton titled, 
promoting critical conversations about identity centers in the text, contested issues in student affairs, diverse perspectives, and respectful dialogue. Patton discusses the tensions of identity centers as places that bring communities together, but also can be seen as places of self-segregation and in-group discrimination. Identity centers were originally created as an institutional response to negative campus racial climate and microaggressions. Patton discusses the negative attributes that identity centers can cause, but also makes the case as to why they exist and should continue to do so. Identity centers can help create a sense of belonging, but can also be seen as spaces that separate. Some identity centers promote open inclusion across identity groups, but many can easily affect students who have identities in multiple non-privileged groups. Peer culture within identity centers can heavily affect how its members relate to their multiple identities in a negative or positive way. Patton also brings up a very important point about identity centers and their relation to campus as a powerful symbol of its institution's dedication to diversity. This begs us to ask the question, are identity centers a check on the box for diversity, equity, and inclusion purposes? Questioning campus symbols and traditions is never an easy thing because, quote, higher education in the United States is bound by tradition, symbolism, and identity politics. These forces combine in institutions to create powerful motives to maintain the status quo, whatever it is, end quote. You can find that on page 251 of her article. Despite the negative, Patton provides four reasons as to why identity centers and their work must persist. They respond to non-inclusive campus climates. They're a part of the ecology of identity groups on campus. Some centers play a role in bridging academic and student affairs, and they carry on traditions and have a symbolic function. In another article by Dr. Mar Michael Benitez Jr. from Washington State University titled, Resituating Culture Centers Within a Social Justice Framework, Is There Room for Examining Whiteness? In that same text uh, as Patton's article, the author offers suggestions on how race-specific culture centers and multicultural centers can be recon reconceptualized from opposing dominant trends of whiteness to becoming places where, or spaces where whiteness and racial superiority can be deconstructed. Use an anti-racist -so anti social justice framework to quote, cultivate an environment that is inclusive of not only those who are labeled and viewed as multicultural, but also those who have been, since the development of multicultural discourse, constructed as independent of multicultural discourse. Benitez challenges institutions to use these spaces in critical ways to challenge white students to examine their own identities through interacting with students of color, not just to promote celebrations of commoditized multiculturalism. Suggestions include carving out a space in the margins of these centers for white students to engage in the process of seeing whiteness through minoritized populations, using centers for community building during orientations and other critical inter and cross-cultural programming. This isn't to imply focusing on white students, but on the strategies that centers can implement to continue their work in social justice advocacy. Now that we've laid down some background on the research surrounding space creation on campus, let's discuss. For this segment, we sit down with Dr. Susan Marine, an associate professor at Merrimack College in North Andover, Massachusetts. Marine uses qualitative critical methods to explore questions of access and agency for people of minoritized genders and to consider ways that feminist and queer methods, praxis and agency can be used to solve pressing problems of exclusion and disempowerment. She seeks to respond to urgent crises in higher education, including the ongoing scourge of sexual harassment and violence, 
the lack of full inclusion of trans and non-binary individuals, and the need for creation of more inclusive and accessible campus environments for non-traditional college students. I was very intrigued by Maureen's work. Um, in her article that she co-authors with Dr. Z. Nicolazzo from University of Arizona, titled Names That Matter, Exploring the Tensions of Campus, LGBTQ Centers, and Trans Inclusion, they discuss how the naming of identity centers can still present limitations and can unknowingly make certain identities more of a focus than others. This is where intentional language becomes important. Quote, if we step away from the need to effectively brand a center, what language, evolving, unfixed, and responsive to emergent needs, could we use to best signify the values of and priorities of our work? End quote. The authors urge centers to focus on intersection of identities as an approach to creating and naming in order to step away from identity-specific ideas. The authors urge administrators to question the limitations of our identity centers and challenge the discourse while still recognizing the crucial role they play on campuses. It's in the questioning, naming, and challenging of tensions that we can help our identity centers continue to evolve and be forces for dismantling systems of power within the academy. I've never considered how even the naming of a center could present limitations and create tension in that space. So I'm honored that she's taken the time to sit down with me via Zoom and have this fantastic conversation. I really like the idea of the, the concept of space, spatial racism that he um, tackles in the book. Yeah. And so that was the inspiration for my idea of just looking at our spaces on campus and that's yeah. what led me to identity centers. Thinking about identity and, centers, yeah. Yeah, and could, Great. can there be a racism in our identity centers, regardless of whether it's multicultural or LGBTQ centers, women's center, it all, I mean, there's a whole spectrum of them, right? Sure. So, um, so yeah, so that's what led me on that journey of just even looking into like, and I had no idea that there was just so much research behind our identity centers in all these different yeah. areas. I mean, it's like a rabbit hole of research. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so yes, yeah, so I, ha I had a lot of fun just going through um, just some amazing articles and work. And um, uh, the first one I read from you and Dr. Nicolazzo was the one on your LGBTQ center and trans inclusion, um, which I actually, right. I really enjoy that article. Oh, um, good. Uh, I well, so I I don't identify as queer, but I am interested in just all. Well, I'm always interested in learning more about identities I don't necessarily strongly associate with. Sure, right. Sure. Because as someone in student affairs, that's something I want to be sensitive to. That's great. Yes, um, that's great. but I also really love that that idea of um, the naming, like that yeah. the naming of a center. Like it was a concept I'd never really considered before. Mm -hmm. So what, um, what made you like, just Wanna get into that? that? Yeah, explore that. Yeah, great question. So um, I think the way it, the, the kind of origin of that idea really for me came from thinking about the center that I worked in um, from 2006 to 2011, I was the director of the Harvard College Women's Center. And when we opened the Women's Center, and I was the first director of that center, we made a very conscious decision at the very beginning to make sure that even though it was called the Women's Center, we were going to be a space that was fully gender inclusive, um, that welcomed students of all genders to come in, to 
participate in our programs, to be part of our community, to feel welcome in the center space. Um, and, you know, back then, I mean, it's 15 years ago now, right? So I don't think it's such a radical idea now. But back then, I think there was a little bit of like, there was some eyebrow raised at us. Um, because, you know, women had fought very hard to have a space at Harvard, at Harvard College specifically, for women. And here we were, myself and my colleagues and our first round, our first group of student interns, all of whom were saying, yes, let's have our doors wide open. Let's bring everyone in. Let's talk about women's issues, but let's talk about trans issues. Let's talk about masculinities. Let's talk about intersections of identity. Let's make sure we think and talk about race and, and racism in these conversations. And I think for some people, and this, this is kind of the larger narrative I would share with you, Veronica, is that I think that women's centers especially have been um, shaped by and kind of historically marked by a particular kind of white feminist mm -hmm. values and ethos, right? That's kind of almost all of our centers have sprung up from um, a sense that, you know, kind of women need spaces to work on issues and advocacy and feeling welcome and all of this. And it's kind of happened in a kind of a white feminist way mm -hmm. um, over the, the history of women's centers. So our women's center was really trying to be different, was trying to be thoughtful, was trying to be intentional. And in the process of calling ourselves a women's center that was gender inclusive, I started to get interested in how do other centers think about that? And then Z and I were talking and we agreed that we were curious about LGBTQ plus centers specifically. And um, Z and I were interested in thinking about why, why do we have this pervasive sense that really they call themselves LGBTQ centers, but they're really LGB centers, if we're really mm -hmm. being honest. Mm -hmm. um, she and I had both seen, I would say, trans marginalization in these centers, bordering on trans exclusion, depending mm -hmm. on the, the place. And we'd also seen centers that did a wonderful job of being trans-centric. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to understand, like, how do these centers think about their relationship to people, not just of diverse sexualities, but of diverse gender identities? So... Mm -hmm. That's really kind of the story of that piece is how do we understand the ways that what we call ourselves, whether we wanted to or not, sends messages mm -hmm. about who um, belongs there and mm -hmm. who's welcome and what our focus is. And that's what, what kind of got us on that, that mm -hmm. journey. So, um, so how does a naming of a center um contribute to the space and the space construction of the center? Well, so right off the bat, when you put a name on something and it has a, a limit to it, so either, mm -hmm. you know, using the word women when you really mean gender mm -hmm. or using the word LGBTQ plus when you really mean LGB, because mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it can go either way, right? You could have a name that's meant to be more um, expansive than it is, or you can have a name that's more restrictive than it sounds mm -hmm. like. Um, and the proof is when people of different identities see an interface with the messaging your center does, and this is, you could probably tell me so much more about this from your marketing background and your, and your um, you know, the way that you do communication work. But my sense has always been when people see the name, they make a decision about whether A, it's of interest to them, B, whether they belong there and C, whether they actually will go there. 
And so names have a lot to do with it. And then there's not just the names, and Z and I explored this in our study, there's all the programming that identity mm-hmm. centers do and right. the messages that sends, right? And one of the things we found in our study was, you know, lots of LGBTQ centers do programming about trans people or you know, sometimes for trans people, but not really with trans people. Mm -hmm. And isn't that a problem? Because if we want to make centers fully relevant, don't we need to make sure that everyone's at the table of all relevant identities when we're planning the programming? And so it just became an interesting question for us about the way that identity centers tell stories about who they are, happens through their name, it happens through their programming, And then it happens through word of mouth because students go there and they either feel um, really welcome and included or they don't. But that too sends a message and either reinforces uh, inclusive expansiveness or shuts it down. Mm -hmm. So how how can our centers create those spaces where, you know, we're having multiple marginalized identities coming together in all these areas. Right. So how 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 can our centers well, I think the, I think one way that I really feel that that can happen, and I saw this in my time at the Women's Center at Harvard, it's in some ways it's not as much about the word you call yourself as it is about the people who congregate there, and more importantly, the people who inform and influence your programming. And I was noticing in the first year of the center's operation that we had a, a series of programs that were you know, they were decently attended, but I wouldn't say people were clamoring to come to the things that we did. And I remember looking at my colleagues and saying, what is it that we need to do to make sure that our programming speaks to people more and specifically to people who may not find themselves necessarily drawn to a women's center? Mm -hmm. And there I was specifically thinking about our queer students of all identities. And I was thinking about women of color. Um, Because I was thinking, you know, the programming we're doing in the first year, largely spearheaded by a white woman with some, uh, you know, pretty diverse perspectives included from our student interns and from the other staff. But at the end of the day, I was at the helm and I needed to have a real heart to heart with myself and a real reckoning about who should be driving and shaping our programming. Mm -hmm. And pretty soon after that, I turned it over to the students. And our student intern group was very, um, represented a lot of different identities, perspectives, political leanings, even. We had some conservative students working at the center. That was really interesting um, because women's centers tend to attract a more progressive or feminist, avowedly feminist group. And we we had a, a great mix in those first couple of years. When we turned the programming over to this wonderfully multiracial, multi-ethnic, multinational, multi-gender group of people with different political leanings, the programming really took off. It became much more popular with other students. It became much broader in its reach. It became much more interesting and intersectional. Mm -hmm. And boy, for me, it was such an important lesson to say, I don't actually have all the answers. The answers lie in the population that we're really trying to reach. And at the end of the day, that's students. And so when you say, what can centers do? I think the more that students and faculty and staff, because some centers serve all three mm-hmm. constituencies, the more that those folks are at the center of the, of the program and the planning of the program, the better. 
and and take out the institutional image or PR or whatever gets mixed in there and just focus on what do folks want to talk about? What do folks need? How do we make sure we, we provide that? Mm-hmm. So do you think that individual identity centers are still um, relevant or an answer or do you see things merging as we yeah. move forward? Yeah, that's a great question. I do continue to see centers with a particular identity vector focus as being very relevant in the mm-hmm. 21st century. Um, I do think that students of different identities, of different um, trajectories in terms of their own growth and development will have different reasons and needs to interface with a center at a particular time in their college experience. What I think is essential is that there should never only be one identity represented by a center on a campus. And in a perfect world, if you have a center that addresses race, if you have an an ethnicity, and, and that includes talking and thinking about whiteness and white supremacy, right? Those things aren't left out of that conversation. You have a center that focuses on gender and By gender, I mean women, men, people of all genders, non-binary students, trans students, you know, agender, bigender, everybody. And then you have a center that thinks and talks about other vectors of identity. Perhaps you have a center for religious and spiritual life. Perhaps you have a center for sexual, you know, LGBT or LGB even um, identities, because arguably you could easily address gender in the gender center. Mm -hmm. The crucial piece then is for those centers to work very collaboratively and very pluralistically to generate programming that speaks to people of, at the intersections, right? Mm-hmm. Because what's not okay ever is to say to a student, well, I know that you're a woman of color who's queer, but you're going to have to pick an identity today and go to that program, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. that, that requires people to artificially compartmentalize who they are. Um, and again, All I keep thinking when I think about centers that practice that way, and thankfully it's fewer and fewer, Mm -hmm. is, gosh, it's it's sort of a, I don't want to be dramatic, but it feels a little violent to me Mm -hmm. to ask people to be a woman today and be a queer person or be a person who, you know, be Muslim tomorrow or be, you know, Native American Thursday. I mean, it just isn't. It's not okay. It's not fair. And it and it and it reflects back. I think ultimately kind of the whiteness and the patriarchy of the way we think about identity, mm-hmm. that we're all who care about this work are all trying to actively dismantle. Right. So kind of shifting the topic toward uh, racism, since we're kind of touching on it. So, so can identity centers be racist? Can they perpetuate certain types of racism, you know, like some of these um, areas that you've touched on? I Absolutely. Yes. Mm-hmm. And and I say that knowing that there were probably things that I did in my leadership of a center that were racist um, or that put whiteness or white supremacy far more in the center of the work we were doing than it should have been. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm very certain that I participated in that. And I will say that as the center, as each passing year happened of our center, it became a place where there was both more and more honesty about that, more and more accountability so that when it seemed that maybe too many of our guest speakers were white women, trending white women again, maybe too many of the topics we were addressing were of concern to affluent white women. Um, students were really great at calling us out on that, mm-hmm. holding us accountable and shifting the dynamic. Um, and the one thing, and this is something that I think is really important for white folks to work on 
as we continue our work in leadership roles and identity centers is to constantly work on defusing our defensiveness, our sense of personal hurt Mm -hmm. around being called out for those behaviors and our sense of embarrassment about it. Frankly, it's embarrassing when you realize, wow, I'm practicing whiteness. Um, That can't be the focus either. We have to come together. I think white people doing this work have to come together and work on that stuff together with each other and ourselves. And again, not displace the burden again onto students of color, queer Mm -hmm. students, um, you know, students of different nationalities. We, We can't make it their job to help us feel better. Mm-hmm. when we're enacting whiteness in our centers. Um, and I have to say, you know, I've been part of the Women's Center community and WSA for many years, and I'm really impressed with the degree of candor and honesty and sharing and accountability also within that group. Um, I, we do talk about these issues. We do keep each other on point and honest about it. Um, but there's so much more that we need to do. And also, you know, and I, I, you didn't exactly ask this question, but I think it was included in your question. Can a multicultural center be racist? Yeah. Um, and I would argue, sure, it can be if and when, for example, the leadership or the people involved there practice, um, you know, colorism against one another or um, marginalization of, um, you know, the, the lesser um populist groups on a campus, but who are still racially or ethnically marginalized, um, that can happen. I think, you know, it's not, again, it's not my place as a white person to say, this is what it looks like. But I've heard enough over the years from students of color that I, I've cared about and known who've worked in or been involved in multicultural centers to know that there are ways in which racism can manifest there. And there are also ways that homo and transphobia can manifest there, just as they can in women's centers. And Mm-hmm. Um, just as racism can in LGBT centers. I mean, we're not, we who work in identity centers are not immune and we are not excused mm-hmm. from doing our own work around countering hegemony in ourselves first and then in our communities. Mm-hmm. So what are some of those, what are some of the ways that um, centers can work on building anti-racist policies and practice? Yeah. You know, how, how can, how can they, be better, you know? Yeah, great question. So I think one way is for everyone at the center, from the professional staff to the student staff to the leadership team or advisory board that works with the center, everyone should participate in, um, you know, anti-racist um, training and work mm-hmm. and learn about the legacies, um, particularly of racism in this country, of um, settler colonialism, Um, of chattel slavery specifically, and the impact of chattel slavery on everything having to do with uh, the way we've set up our economic structure, capitalism, our democratic structures of voting and representation, everything, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's something that people can or should be able to opt out of. And I think it's really fundamental to then being able to do policy work, programming that's inclusive, that's thoughtful, that's um, liberatory. That's the word I use a lot for the work I try to do is, does it advance the liberation and flourishing of everyone, but particularly those who have been historically marginalized and oppressed? Mm -hmm. And I think by doing that collective training, those collective dialogue work, um, staff of centers are better positioned and and more ready 
um, to then go out and do policy and programming that's inclusive, that's liberatory, that challenges the existence of hegemony on the campus, which is everywhere. And, and this is probably the most complex part. People who run women's centers, LGBTQ centers, multicultural centers, typically are not tenured faculty. They don't have a lot of protection. Mm-hmm. So when they decide that they need to challenge a policy or a practice, it can feel very risky. And that is very real. Mm-hmm. And so what I tried to do in my work, and I think is, you know, I'm not telling other people what to do, but sort of helps and makes a difference is to build strong collaborations with people who can come to your aid and support you when you have to take on those challenges. And that includes tenured faculty mm-hmm. um, and uh, build relationships with alumni, build relationships with students, build relationships with, with senior administration so that when you need people to have your back, you will not be alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, so i uh- I know we're nearing toward the end of our 30 minutes here. So my last question I have, um, so in one of the other articles I was reading that you sent me, um, there was this phrase in there about fashionable fashionable apathy to cultural transformation. I thought that was a really interesting phrase. Um, So how how can identity centers keep from falling into that trap? Well, the good news is, is I think identity centers, many cases are the last bastions of commitment to cultural transformation on a campus. Um, But I think when we get complacent about what we're there to do is when that can happen. And so it's great to have a strong community of students who hang out at your center. It's great to have a strong community of people who show up for your events. Um, Those are wonderful things. It's lovely to have alumni connections and all those things. But at the end of the day, Um, Higher education is, in many respects, is broken, particularly around the ways we do or don't practice equity, inclusion, and liberatory futures for people, right? And if identity centers lose sight of our fundamental radical history, which is many of us, most of us, were founded to create change, to foster cultural transformation, If we lose sight of that work, if we lose sight of pushing against the structures and practices that prevent human flourishing, I I would argue we've lost our soul a little bit. Mm -hmm. So we might need times when we rest Mm -hmm. and we replenish to be able to pick up those fights again, but I think pick them up we must. And uh, and that requires real um, alliance building. Um, real thoughtfulness, real humility about the work and what it means, and uh, learning from our ancestors and our ancestors' ancestors about what good, solid, helpful activism looks like, and uh, opening our eyes to what it means to to end oppression. Thank you all for listening in. I hope this segment was insightful and opens the door for continued conversations and how our spaces on campus can still be places of racism and perpetuate certain types of racism. I hope this encourages you to see the need to take action in creating more inclusive and accessible campus environments for our college students. I'd like to extend my deepest thanks to Dr. Susan Marine for her time and willingness to be a part of this project. In the show notes, you'll find a list of the articles, including Dr. Marine's, that help shape the questions I ask in this segment. This podcast series was produced by Paul Eaton, 
Assistant Professor of Educational Leadership at Sam Houston State University. In conjunction with doctoral scholars enrolled in Higher Education Leadership 7372, Diversity and Culture in Higher Education during fall 2020. You can contact Paul Eaton via email at pwe003 at shsu.edu. Content and perspectives presented in this series are intended for educational use. You can download a copy of episode transcripts and show notes at http colon backslash backslash bit.ly backslash anti-racist college. The views and opinions expressed on this program and series are those of the persons appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Sam Houston State University. Thank you for listening. This has been an episode of Building the Anti-Racist College and University.